If, uh, if you're into sports at all, then uh, you're familiar with the arguments about who is the greatest of all time. So the, the acronym now is the GOAT, and uh, the greatest of all time, and, and these arguments about people from different eras, and who's the best, is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James, uh, for those who like basketball anyway. And uh, I mean, with hockey, you can't really argue, it's someone other than Wayne Gretzky, so it's not much of a debate there, but nevertheless, these debates go on and on, and they're endless, and they get old, and they're constantly recurring, and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's just kind of, I don't know, it's kind of for fun, but for, for the most part, the pursuit of greatness uh, is, uh, in whatever field is typically a prideful and idolatrous pursuit. Uh, very rarely do any of these guys who are in the running uh, for being a great athlete or the greatest athlete, very rarely are they giving glory to God for their abilities and skills and for being in that position. Uh, but it's, it, this isn't just, just for athletes. Uh, no matter what it is we do, if we're pursuing greatness, often it's prideful and idolatrous. However, uh, it is a godly thing to desire to do things with excellence in order to honor the Lord. That's a good thing. Now, there's much uh, talk about being radical and about being hardcore when it comes to being a Christian. Uh, we've discussed this before at other times, and a lot of this talk is unhelpful. Uh, as the reality is, the Lord calls us to be faithful in some very ordinary ways, uh, ways that will not look particularly amazing to a lot of people, uh, nor will it make us famous. Uh, if we're just really, really kind to our family, uh, that's, you know, that, that would be amazing. That would be faithful to the Lord. Uh, but for the most part, no one's going to think we're, we're all that awesome uh, as they look at us. But uh, having said that, the desire to be a mature Christian, to be somebody, uh, a Christian who is worth emulating, worth looking up to, uh, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, it's not necessarily a prideful thing. It could be, but not necessarily. Uh, certainly, for example, many parents, I assume, I hope all of us here, have the, rightly have the godly desire to have a faith worth modeling for their kids, that we might be able to say to our children, uh, you know, that they are, you know, certainly we would want them to far surpass us in their faith, but that we could be a model for that. I'm sure we're all praying for that and desiring that. That's a good thing. So the issue is not that we would want to be a good example to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but whether we have a right understanding of what an exemplary faith looks like, and if, it's, if, if we're seeking to become that. And so today, uh, Luke gives us a story of a man, in Luke chapter 7, you can turn there now, uh, he gives us a story of a man who has a notable faith. Uh, so much so that Jesus himself marvels at it, which is, which is something to consider there. That's, that's, that's amazing, really. And this story is here for our encouragement and for our instruction. And the reality is that an ex exemplary faith can be expressed in very simple ways. Uh, the example of faith which Jesus commends to us here is from a man that we know little about. We don't know much about him beyond, in fact, nothing beyond him besides what we're going to read here in just a moment. 
Uh, we don't hear anything else after this about him. We don't, we don't hear that he went on to preach great revivals and pastor massive churches and uh, do miraculous things. We're not told anything like that. We know nothing else about him. I do believe, uh, you know, Jesus commends him here. I think we have every reason to say he has a, a saving faith, that he stayed true to the end likely, but we're not told what, you know, what became of the man and, and what that looked like. Uh, after this story. Uh, So, I hope uh, we can be encouraged today as we examine the type of faith that is exemplary and and that we can see it in its simplicity. Uh, That that what what we see here is not, you know, what the world would necessarily say is the cream of the crop and the most knowledgeable person, but it's really quite a simple thing, and yet Jesus draws our attention to how uh, amazing this is. And so, again, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and let's read verses 1 to 10, and then we'll dive in. So, uh, Luke 7, 1. After Jesus finished all, of the, all his sayings, so this is after his sermon now, we've worked our way through his sermon on the plain. After he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house... They found the servant well. So the first thing I want us to see as we go through this, that an exemplary faith bears fruit in accordance with the knowledge one has. It bears fruit in accordance with the knowledge one has. So let me flesh that out for us. This story focuses in on a Gentile, uh, which is the first thing that makes this stand out. We don't expect this kind of faith from a Roman soldier. We would expect it from, uh, you know, one of the leaders of Israel. Someone who knows the Old Testament scriptures well, was reared in it, he teaches the people. We would expect uh, such faith from someone like that. But we've already seen Jesus clashed with such people over and over, and they didn't believe in him. And then in contrast to that, here is this Gentile, this, uh, this soldier, who's commended for his faith. So this man is a centurion. A centurion is a commander of a hundred soldiers. Uh, he's possibly the head of Herod Antipas's guard in uh, Capernaum. There, uh, we can't say for sure. Capernaum, uh, exactly, you know, if he was the head of, of Herod's guard, um, but he is a centurion over a hundred soldiers. It's kind of a mid-level rank, maybe like a captain today. Um, he's stationed in Capernaum, as I said, which is a city in Galilee. 
Jesus has been there before in chapter 4. Uh, we, we saw some interactions. We'll uh, mention that a little bit in just a moment. But we're told here in verse 2 that this man, this centurion, who's not named, uh, he has a servant that was dear to him and was near death due to this sickness. So he sends a delegation to Jesus that he might come. He sends to inquire of, of Christ. Uh, so here's a man who, he has a servant, but he, he loves this servant. He's, va- he's a valuable servant to him. He cares for him. He wants to help him, and he sends to Jesus. Verse 3, we're told he did this when the centurion heard about Jesus. So he's, he's heard oral reports about Jesus. No doubt his teachings, his miracles, and his power. And so he sends out this delegate to 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 get him. So again, back in chapter 4, uh, verse 31 uh, and following, uh, Jesus was in Capernaum there, and we're told there that people were astonished at his teaching, uh, the, the words that he taught, that he taught with authority, also the, the power of his words to, uh, to speak and have people be healed. Uh, he cast out a demon there, and he healed many people, including Simon's own mother-in-law in Capernaum. It says there that they were all amazed, all the people, And they said, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So there's this amazement over his power, the power of his word. And no doubt this is some of the report that this centurion has heard. And so now he's he's sending to to Jesus that he might come and help his servant. This delegation he sends, we're we're told, is made up of elders of the Jews. So these are leaders... Uh, they're stationed in Capernaum. They're likely not uh, closely related and connected to the leaders uh, in Jerusalem, who we uh, especially see clashing uh, with Jesus. Likely, I mean, it seems from this story that they are, you know, friends with this centurion and are friendly towards Jesus. So that, that's why that's why I say that. And so they go, and on behalf of this centurion, these Jewish leaders. Uh, plead with Jesus, verse 4, to come and heal this man's servant. And they say that this man is worthy or deserving to have you do this for him. And then they explain why it is they say that, why they've come to this conclusion. They say, for he loves our nation, that is, he loves the Jews, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So I think what, what they mean here, what they're saying, is that this man, this centurion, is a God-fearing Gentile. He's not like the other Romans and the other Gentiles who hate us, who despise us, who want to see us ruined. No, he loves us. And this is amazing because he's there as an occupying soldier. He's there to occupy this area on behalf of the Roman government. And there was a lot of tension throughout the history of Romans as they're occupying, especially in Judea, and but all throughout the empire. There was tension, and a lot of them despised the Jews in particular, uh, but not this man. Rather, he loves these people, and, and so much so he even, you know, he, he, he puts his money where his mouth is, and he builds them a synagogue, which may mean he, he, he it was his idea, and he had the people come and build it. He may have funded it or funded a vast majority of it, uh, but he's behind the, the fact that they even have a synagogue. They're a place where they can gather, and worship, and, and read the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's a God-fearer. A God-fearer was just a name that Jews gave to Gentiles uh, who uh, recognized 
the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, Yahweh as, as the, the Lord, the one true God, uh, but they had not yet uh, been circumcised and converted uh, in that way to become part of the Jewish nation. And so that's, it doesn't use the word God-fearer for him, but I think that's precisely what he is, and, and, and this is why they come and, and they, are, they say he's, he's worthy to have you do this. They bring evidence to this, just in case, just in case Jesus might be like so many of them and simply dismiss the request, oh, Gentile, no. Oh, Roman soldier, not a chance I'm helping him. Just in case Jesus has that, they, they come with the evidence. He's a, he's a God-fearer. He built us a synagogue. He loves us. He's worthy to have you do this. But of course, Jesus didn't come just for the Jewish people. Luke is writing this gospel, if you'll remember, back from the very first chapter, the very beginning of it. He's writing to a Gentile, a man named Theophilus. And he highlights throughout the book of Luke... Uh, the, the fact that Jesus is the hope, not just for the Jewish people, but for all of the world, for all of mankind. And he's writing to encourage Theophilus, this Gentile, to help him see that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, not just from Israel, but from the world as well. So this story, I think, anticipates the story from Acts 10. So uh, Kelly read a little bit of that earlier for us. Um, and, and, and in that uh, chapter, which is also written by Luke. Remember, Acts is, is part two of Luke's writing. Uh, so also in Acts 10, uh, there we see the Gentiles when they are uh, sort of, I guess you could say, officially welcomed into the church, into the New Testament church. Uh, the Apostle Peter's there, and, uh, and, and his conclusion, as we read, is, is they've, they've, these Gentiles have been saved. They've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, just as we Jews were. Uh, what's to stop them from being baptized? They're full members of the church. And, uh, and, and, and if you remember from Acts 10, uh, the, the man at the middle of that, the Gentile at the middle of that, was a God-fearing centurion, a man named Cornelius. So this, this story here seems to anticipate that, uh, that reality, that one day would come. So the, the purpose of God in choosing the Jews, in choosing uh, Abraham, making his promise to Abraham that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and then from Abraham comes the Jewish uh, nation and the Israelites. Uh, the purpose of God choosing Abraham's family was to always to bring about the Messiah through that line. He said, it's, it's through the line of Abraham uh, that, that this, this Messiah is going to come. And then later on we find out it's actually even more narrow. It's from the line of David that this Messiah is going to come. But all the while as he's making that narrow to the people of Israel and, and, and narrowing it even more to the, the line of, of, of David, the whole, the whole purpose of that and the end goal of that is to then through that seed, through that person who would come, that Messiah, to then bless all the nations of the earth. It was never to be restricted to just the Jewish people, but that through them might come salvation to the ends of the earth. So this anticipates that, and we see it come more clearly to fruition in the book of Acts and in chapter 10, and even now as the gospel continues to go through all of the earth. So Jesus came first to the Jews, yes, but then also the message of the gospel went out to all the nations of the earth, and it continues to do so. And here we see, even, even before all of that's clear, 
a Gentile soldier being commended for his faith by Jesus. And so here is a man who is an outsider. He's not part of the covenant people of Israel. He's not a descendant of Abraham in the flesh. But who nevertheless looks in and sees the truth. He was born into a nation that the Lord had let go in their rebellion and misery. And yet this man believed. Jump down to verse 9 quickly with me. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This outsider was disadvantaged in so many ways when it came to knowing the truth about God. He was not catechized as a child. He didn't grow up singing the great truths of the Old Testament. He wasn't the leading rabbi of his day. He didn't have the greatest knowledge of Old Testament scripture. But what he did know, he believed. And he sought faithfulness in accordance with what he knew. And I think this is what is remarkable about this man's faith and what it is that, that causes Jesus to commend his faith to us and to tell us it's, and, to, and to marvel at it. This is what is exemplary. He's, he's not the most obvious candidate. He doesn't know the most. And yet what he knows, he believes and he acts on it. John Calvin writes this. He says that one of the reasons Christ was so pleased with this man's faith was, quote, that a slight and inconsiderable acquaintance with doctrine yielded so sudden and abundant fruit. It was no small matter to declare in such lofty terms the power of God, of which a few rays only were yet visible in Christ. So again, he's just saying there, that this man didn't have a ton of knowledge about Jesus, and yet he acted on what he knew, and he believed what it was that he knew and had heard. And so I think this is incredibly instructive for us, and I hope encouraging. One doesn't need to be the greatest theologian in the world to have a real and a vital and even an exemplary faith. One doesn't need to have a certain background of having been brought up in the church or whatever. You might feel you have much to learn. And perhaps you still do, if we can all acknowledge that. But you can believe what you do know. And if you're trusting Christ, you can live faithfully to the truth that you do understand. And so it might not seem like much, but it is true fruit that's pleasing to God. So growing in our knowledge of God and our understanding of His Word, it's important, it's necessary, it's helpful, it's important for our growth in righteousness. But remember, it's the one who does them, who does the words of Christ, who obeys, that is pleasing to God. We looked at that uh, last week. So, let me give you an example here. It's more commendable to be a faithful prayer, someone who prays faithfully and regularly, than to be somebody who has, you know, can, can, can give 
a really good theological and doctrinal understanding of, of prayer and how we should pray and, and, and then the proper, some proper words to say, to be able to do that but then not pray. You, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's more commendable to someone who actually prays than someone who can tell you all about prayer doctrinally and theologically but doesn't really pray or doesn't pray very much. Of course, it's best to, be, to do both. Uh, have, have a great understanding of prayer theologically, doctrinally, and to do it. I, I, I hope you understand my point. And so my encouragement to us then is don't wring your hands about all the things that you don't know or don't understand. Seek understanding, absolutely. But also seek faithfulness to that which you do understand. To that which you do know. The thief on the cross, he didn't bear fruit like the Apostle Paul did. There was no time for that. But he bore real fruit in accordance with what he understood and in the time he had. It's the same with this centurion. We don't see him bearing the same fruit that the Apostle Paul did. But he bore real fruit. There was evidence. And it's the same with us. It may not seem like much, but it's not to be despised. Number two, exemplary faith is humble, recognizing one's unworthiness. So as we saw in verse four, the Jewish elders declare this centurion to be a worthy man, they say. He's deserving of this miracle, of you to help him. And on a human level, we might look at him and say, yeah, that guy deserves a break. You know, if any human does, that guy's a good guy. If there's any Gentile who, you know, is deserving to have Christ come and help him, this is the man right here. Uh, but this is not really how the centurion sees it. These other people can look at this man and, 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 and speak highly of him, but the centurion himself has a different view of things. So look at verse 6 again. And Jesus went with them. This is the, the, the Jewish elders who came to him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Jesus goes with the men, but, but then runs into a second delegate, as he's almost there, uh, coming from the centurion. And they have uh, more to say, and a more detailed message for Jesus from, from the centurion. He asks the Lord not to trouble himself by coming to him, since he's unworthy to have Jesus under his roof, to have him in his house. He's not worthy of that, so he doesn't want to trouble him. And so it, it seems like he has a slight change of heart. The first delegate is sent. They say, come. But now he sends a second delegate saying, you know what? Uh, maybe don't come. <laughs> and, I, and I think we just see him. He's, he, he, he wants help. He needs help. He recognizes this. And yet he feels his unworthiness. And before Jesus arrives, sends a second delegate and just says, uh, you needn't trouble yourself to, to come all the way here and, and be in my house. I'm not worthy of that. Uh, just say the word, he says instead. Just say the word. This unworthiness, it's, it, it's possibly a recognition of the fact that you know, the centurion is a Gentile. Uh, he doesn't make, maybe he doesn't want any sort of ceremonial uncleanness to come to Jesus by entering into his house. He may very well be acutely aware of his own sinfulness and depravity, and perhaps that's what leads him to declare his unworthiness. He, 
you know, he, he declares him Lord and, and, and understands this. He's powerful. He's got divine power. He understands something of the majesty of Christ and his own sinfulness. And he's just, I'm not worthy to have you here. So ex exactly what's underneath his declaration of unworthiness is not elaborated. But we're told it's for this reason he didn't presume to even come to Jesus. He knows he's on the outside, and he knows that he's unworthy of Christ. So he doesn't, even, he doesn't even presume to approach him. For this reason, I did not come to you, he says, let alone have you in my house. To presume is to uh, assume something in an audacious way. So, um, you know, he, he could have had the attitude, I'm a Roman centurion, you Jews, you answer to me and to us, and so you come, right? Uh, but he doesn't have that attitude. He doesn't make demands. He's not owed anything by Jesus. His building of a synagogue didn't make him worthy in his eyes. He's not putting forth his good deeds as a way of purchasing divine favor. Look, you need to come now. P.S. I'm the guy who, you know, loves your people built the synagogue, gave my own money to make it happen, so, you know, come on over here. This is not his attitude. He's unworthy, and he knows it. I think this is remarkable. This is remarkable humility. One commentator notes that prior to healing the man's servant, the Lord had healed the man's heart. We see this man producing good fruit. If you think back to last week and and the relationship of bearing fruit to our heart. He has some understanding. And he understands his unworthiness before God. His humility evidences this. Psalm 144, 3-4, David says this, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And this centurion expresses this kind of humility. He's unworthy. He knows this. And this is the opposite of what so, the attitudes so many people have today. And it's not just today, but throughout history. We tend to think we are owed something by God. If we do the slightest kindness toward Him, we tend to think He owes us something. I did that good thing. I've gone to church my whole life. I've given lots of money. I've done these things. The least you could do is X. But this isn't the way it works, friends. Our best of deeds, our best deeds do not ever put God into our debt. Absolutely, we are told that He delights to bless His children and often he gives us many good gifts and many blessings. And we here have received many good gifts from the Lord and many blessings. Uh, as many as the faults are of the nation that we live in, uh, we enjoy relative peace. We sit here now in a relatively comfortable room. Uh, we, we drove here in a matter of minutes. I think all of us probably, most of us drove here, could have if we want, didn't. Uh, it's because we chose not to. And if we walked or biked here, we did so without any real concern about our safety. We've been given many great blessings in addition 
to, to our salvation. But we must not think that we deserve these things from God, that He owes us these things. Even when we're blessed for our obedience. When I was in seminary, uh, there were many people there. Um, everyone's kind of, you know, trying to eke their way through financially. And uh, there are lots of stories of people who were at a dead end. Uh, you know, they, 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 things got more expensive than they thought it would be when they went to seminary. And then, you know, somebody provides for them. Somebody uh, gives them money to be able to make it through the next month or helps them out. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we, we would look at that and say, man, the, the Lord's blessed you for, you know, for, for, for trying to be faithful and obedient. And, and, and yet there were other people that it worked the other way. And other friends had to go home and, and leave seminary and finish online and try and find a job and prolong the process a lot longer. The Lord blessed one with finances to just finish it out. And with another, he had a different plan for that person. Doesn't mean he's any more the father of the one that received and, and less the father of the other. He just had a different plan. And we don't know his plans. And he didn't owe anything to the one that he didn't owe to the other. He just... He's, he's God, and we are not. In Luke 17.10, Jesus shows us the attitude with which we ought to serve. He says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So commendable faith is a humble faith. And, and, and the reality is we don't need a PhD to understand that we are unworthy before the Lord of glory the king of all creation, that as his creatures who are sinful and have sinned against him were unworthy. That's not, we don't need to be brilliant or rocket scientists or Christians for years to, to understand that or grasp that. And so let us repent of any swagger or entitlement we might have before God. I remember friends in university, they would tell me about their arguments with God. And they would uh, explain this. They would just sort of, well, I don't like the way, you know, they're praying this way to God. And I just, I would suggest that's a bad idea. <laughs> and uh, suggest is too light of a word. Don't do that. Uh, we, we don't approach the God of the universe like that. And just, we're just going to argue with him. Like, that's, that's foolish. We don't go to him presumptuously or with a list of demands. May we see the greatness of God and recognize ourselves to be his lowly servants. That's an exemplary faith. And yet the fact that we are unworthy doesn't mean that we don't approach him in any way. The third point, exemplary faith is also bold, appealing to the Lord's power despite our unworthiness. Exemplary faith is bold, appealing to the Lord's power despite our unworthiness. The centurion's unworthiness is real. That's a real thing. He really was unworthy, and he knew it, and he really knew it. But this doesn't stop him from making a request. He makes a request of Jesus anyway, out of a recognition that Jesus is his only hope here. He has this servant that he loves, his servant is dying. 
There's, there's nothing else he can do. I'm not worthy to go to Jesus, but I have no other place. There's nothing else I can do here. And so he, he approaches anyway. It's bold still. Verse 7. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. There's the request. And let my servant be healed. The request is simply for Jesus to say the word. That's all it takes. Jesus need not even be present. Again, in chapter 4, the people of Capernaum, they were amazed by the word of Jesus, having authority in his teaching and authority in his ability to just heal. Just by speaking. So he knows Jesus need only speak it. So this is his request. Then read verse 8 again with me. For I too, he says, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so this this is a lesser to greater argument here that he's making. Centurion is saying uh, that even he has just a, a mere man has been given authority to give orders and people carry it out. And so how much more is this true of the Lord who has divine authority? As the centurion can give commands to his soldiers and his servants, so Jesus can say the word and heal his servant. And so this centurion, he may not understand everything there is to know. He didn't grow up going to the synagogue and memorizing the Old Testament scriptures. But he understands authority. And he understands that when Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. That he has authority. And that's, that's what he understands, and he's, and he's acting on it. And he's asking Jesus to say these words. And so his sense of unworthiness doesn't stop him from making a request. So a person with faith understands their own unworthiness, but still understand their only hope is to come boldly before God because they have nowhere else to turn. To whom else would we go? We need him, though we are unworthy to come to him. Daryl Bach says, Faith is defined in this chapter as a plea to Jesus to offer his aid in the form of his power, even though one is unworthy to receive it. So this is the seeming dichotomy uh, where you know, we're not worthy to approach the Lord, but at the same time, we must approach Him because we need Him. It's like the praying tax collector Jesus spoke of who wouldn't dare look to heaven because he's unworthy and he knows it, and yet still he beat his breast and asked God for mercy. He still did approach Him in prayer and ask Him for mercy. Though he knew he was unworthy, he had to still ask. It was his only hope because he knew he was a sinner. It's a bold request, though he was unworthy. A human illustration can be found in the book of Esther. The Jews, they were condemned to die by the hand of Haman, his cruel plan. Esther could be killed if she approached the king without being summoned. The laws of the land were such that even the queen wasn't allowed to approach the king uh, without being summoned. Uh, Even the queen would be unworthy of just marching into his presence. And yet, humanly speaking, Esther's only hope for herself and her fellow Jews was the king who had the power to overturn Haman's plan. 
And so she both humbly and yet boldly went before the king to ask for help. And sure enough, there he rescued the people. So exemplary faith is knowing we deserve nothing from God, but going to him because we have nowhere else to go, recognizing our great need of him. We need his mercy. We need his grace. We need his help to be saved. And and, and we need his help every single day that we might continue the race. Read verses 9 and 10 with me again. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him, turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The man, the centurion, is unworthy, but he makes his request in faith. And notice, Jesus doesn't stand back, are you serious? You're not worthy of me. Right? When, when a man approaches him in this way, he shows him much grace and even marvels. And he grants his request in this case. And the man is healed. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we see that on display right here. He does not send this man away, but receives him and, and answers his prayer and then commends to us this man and his faith. The Lord has told us to come to him, but we don't just come to him in any old way. We aren't to come to him with swagger and with our demands. God's not primarily our servant. We don't come to him in that way, but we are to come. I say he's not primarily our servant. He's not our servant. Perhaps you feel unworthy to come to the Lord because of your sin. Well, it's true. It's true. You should feel that way. You are unworthy to come before the Lord. But at the same time, the Lord is your only hope. And so to Him you must come. So come to Him for mercy for grace, look to Jesus who died for sinners, who rose again from the dead. Come to him to find grace, to find forgiveness. And everyone who is trusting Christ, who says he is my only hope, for all of us who are trusting in him, we can continue to come boldly to the throne of grace, though we continually are unworthy to do so. But we can do it precisely because we have had our sins forgiven, The wrath of God has been propitiated by Christ. Our sins have been removed. We've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. And because He is our great and faithful high priest that makes us pleasing to the Father, because of that, we can indeed come to Him and come boldly to the throne of grace in the name of Jesus. And that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. It's not a magical formula that we just utter that suddenly just transforms a prayer. It's saying that we come to God on the merits of Christ, on, the, in, on, on His merits alone. We come, we are unworthy, and so we pray in His name, and, and we ask for, for His sake that God would answer this prayer, not because we are worthy in and of ourselves. And so, as Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So notice there, even as we come boldly and confidently and are told to do that, we are still seeking mercy and grace to help in our time of need. It's, it's not a demand of something we're owed. Even as Christians, we're still seeking mercy. We're still seeking grace in our time of need. It's a pleading for merciful aid. So let, let us be people who pray. We, we are sinful people. We need to be reminded of that, that we might repent of that, that we might seek uh, righteousness and, and desire to bear much fruit. Uh, but even as we are confronted with our sin, we still must approach the throne of grace. So don't, don't let your unworthiness, though you failed perhaps yet again in a way that you in some ways can't believe you failed yet again in that same way that I failed last week or two months ago or yesterday or whatever other way it was, and you feel your unworthiness settle in, it, it, let that land, own that, repent of that, and, and come to the Lord. That's why He came, because we're unworthy. Don't let your unworthiness stop you. Confess your sin to God. Cry out to Him for help. Be someone who prays. Pray for your own self, your own spiritual, physical needs. Pray for your family. Pray for your church, the people around you, your friends, your co-workers, unbelievers. We are unworthy people, but our, our only hope is the Lord. And so call out to Him boldly. A real saving faith that is exemplary and commendable is not something that's reserved for a few elites who are, you know, reared in the greatest of circumstances. Here we see a Gentile soldier, a man with an unlikely pedigree, commended to us for his remarkable faith. And it's, and it's really, in some ways, simple. He was humbled before the Lord, knowing his unworthiness, and yet he still knew he needed the Lord and came to him and made a bold request of him, asking for his power and his help. And so be encouraged. The Lord is gracious. Don't fret all the things that you don't yet know or understand. Certainly seek to grow in your understanding, but also seek faithfulness to, to the things that you do know, that you do understand. Confess your unworthiness, and certainly don't lose sight of that. And yet remember your great need of God's aid in so many ways, and call out to Him in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our unworthiness to you. There's, we, we have nothing in and of ourselves that gives us any right to approach you. Father, our only hope is to come to you in the name of Christ Jesus. Our only hope is that he is a good and faithful high priest and that he deal with our sin and that he makes us righteous by faith and because of Christ Jesus your son we can come to you in prayer 
We can come to you to find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. And so, God, we come to you now and we ask you for this. We ask you for help. Make us people of prayer. May that be our first recourse when difficulty comes, when we get out of bed, the last thing we do before we lay down at night. May we be quick to plead with you for help. God, we we thank you that you don't just wait for us to become really, really, really smart in our understanding of theology before you start working in us. And thank you that even simple things are commendable demonstrations of fruitfulness. So I pray that we would not lose sight of that, that we would not despair over, the, over all the things that we don't yet know or understand, and that you'd help us to be faithful to what we do know, that you'd make us loving fathers and husbands and wives and mothers, that you'd help us to work hard for the honor of your name, that we would seek purity of heart. God, these, these, are, these things don't take a rocket scientist to understand, but they truly do require your help to produce this fruit in us. And so we ask you for this. Forgive us where we fall short. We, we acknowledge our unworthiness, and we are asking you for your help, that you would make much of yourself through us, that we would not be exemplary that, to make much of ourselves, but that we might be able to instruct one another and help one another our children, and our friends around us in what is true, in what is true faith. So help us, Lord. We pray you'd work fruit in us for your own namesake and glory. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus because we have no other way we can come to you. And so we we pray these things in Christ's powerful name. Amen.